show, the Iwo Jima radio show, I'll call it. It was an incredible energy. You could feel it. I could feel it from the audience. I could feel it in the in the delivery. We spent an hour on hallowed ground really talking about, and I was really happy to take you there. We get done the radio show, and my brother Michael, who, as you know, you've heard me talk about, has been instrumental in this, this show, the book, all of it. He's been so instrumental, and yet again, he comes through. We get done the radio show. And he hands me this book. Hands me this book that he had in his truck. This is unbelievable, really. What are the chances? What are the chances I get down there and do a show on Iwo Jima Gitsani? He's got this book there. The book was called Flags of Our Fathers, Heroes of Iwo Jima. And we talked about that a little bit, Iwo Jima, on the radio show. We talked about the photo. We talked about the photo in my studio. It's a symbol more than I ever could have imagined, standing on conquering that stinking rock. Nothing would stop those Marines. That was the message. I get done that radio show, and I get this book. I open it up, because I'm excited about the whole topic, really, and everything that had happened. The book looked cool. I realized I had never read a book on Iwo Jima. Here I am talking. I started asking myself, what do I even really know about what happened? Well, boy, was I waiting for this journey I opened the book, not knowing what to expect, and the opening lines, it says, one of those flag raisers was my father. And it really struck me. It really did. It stopped me in my tracks to hear him say that. I couldn't really imagine my son writing a memoir like that. And some of this is, is, is tough stuff. I asked him a little bit about it. He's got a great attitude about it. This guy's unstoppable. But the, big, the book begins by telling how the son, James Bradley, who you're going to hear from him in a minute, went to Mount Sirabachi and reflecting on what happened there. Here's what he said. And this is a, a theme you're going to hear repeat in the interview. He says, my father and his five comrades, they were either teenagers or in their early 20s, typified these kids, tired, scared, determined, brave. He talks about this image that his father was part of, this symbolism that inspired the world, really. He talks about how it all got started. I want to just read this part out of this book, and I'll relate it back to you here and give him a proper introduction. I got to this point in the book, and he's going to talk about it here in the interview. It was a point that he began to write this book. He says in the book, he shoved, he's speaking of his father. His father shoved the mementos of his immortality into a few cardboard boxes and hid those in a closet. He married his childhood sweetheart. He opened a funeral home, fathered eight children, joined the PTA, the Lions, the Elks, and shut out virtually any conversation on the topic of raising the flag on Iwo Jima. I want to just say this for a minute. This is what caught me. This is why were they not talking? I'm experiencing the same thing. I haven't talked about it. I get in touch with guys and I'm not talking about it. They'll sometimes write to me. I get it. I understand. At least I thought I understood, but I'm not sure that I do. You're going to hear us talk through it a little bit. But I want to just say this. I was no Mount Sirabachi for sure. I mean, what we did was like a, uh, you know, a, a, a vacation campaign compared to Iwo Jima. But guess what? I did the same thing, more or less. Not quite to the same extent. It still is kind of. There's a sea bag. 
back on a shelf in my garage somewhere, and that's where most of the stuff is. Some of it no longer resides there, thanks to my son as well. I remember when I caught my son playing with that stuff. I didn't say anything to him, but I got a little upset. You know why? There's some concern that it's contaminated, all the chemical agents over there. We don't really know. But it did. It woke me up a little bit. And my son bought me this, um, this, this photo album that we decorated. And, and, and that, to me, is my legacy to my children. And so I had this, this, I understood what his father was saying. As I'm reading this book, in some ways, it was like reading a chapter out of my own life. In this case, though, is the son reflecting on this. Can you imagine? Just imagine for a second. Your dad was, you know, on Iwo Jima. If you can't relate to that, your dad was on the moon, man. That's what we're talking about. But he wouldn't talk about it. Why wouldn't he talk about it? And I just want to say this. Why wouldn't they say what they saw? We're gonna, we talk about that in the interview, but it still remains my central question. And I know why. I just don't know that if I can articulate it in a way that's understandable. But I'll let you think about that a little bit. Why is it that the Marines do what they do? Wait till you hear what James Bradley has to say about the Marines on that campaign. Wait till you hear. What is it? Why do the Marines act that way? Why do they go and do what they do? Why then come home and not talk about it? Think about that question. I was very excited when I reached out to James and he agreed to accept the invitation to come on the show. As I said before me, this is an iconic moment to speak to the son of somebody who raised the flag at Iwo Jima. What I didn't know when I reached out to him initially is that I had no idea the level of celebrity that James Bradley is, quite frankly. He's going to tell you the story in this interview that you're about to hear, but he had some involvement with President Bush Sr. Wait till you hear the story. It's absolutely blow your mind. And I got to tell you, I'm so excited to be the one to bring it to you. But without any further ado, please welcome a man who is as big a hero as any Marine on Iwo Jima in my mind. James Bradley, he brought this story to the world in a way that we wouldn't have if it weren't for him. The son of Navy Corpsman John Henry Bradley. James Bradley wrote the book on Iwo Jima. It's called Flags of Our Fathers, an incredible account, incredible testimony, and incredible writing. This incredible book was later turned into a movie created by Steven Spielberg and Clint Eastwood. James went on to write three other books, The China Mirage, The Empirical Cruise, and The Flyboys. All true stories, secret history unveiled, revealing true stories of courage. James does a great job capturing the essence of our nation's finest warriors. He's just finishing his fourth book. He's been working on from Vietnam for 10 years now. Get a sense of the dedication that he has to the craft. Please visit jamesbradley.com where you can check out his books. And, of course, they're available at all major resellers. Just look for James Bradley. But you're going to want to do yourself a favor. Take a look at the books that James Bradley has to offer. You will find yourself on a journey like no other. I read his book, and the quality of the work is is, is as good, if not better, than Jack Carr and certainly Stephen King. And the best part is it's the truth. Please welcome James Bradley. James Bradley, great to have you here this morning. Your father, John Henry Bradley, was one of the original flag raisers on Iwo Jima. And there's a lot I want to ask you about this. These are some big shoes that you have to fill. But before we get into all that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your father, what kind of father he was, and what kind of relationship you had with him before the book. Obviously, you wrote the book after he had passed. But tell us a little bit about your father and, and how, how you got along with him, what your relationship was like. You know, when I was five years old, I remember sitting in the barber's chair. Remember those boards they put across the arms for the little boys? Yes. And I I was sitting on whatever you call that little bumper board. 
And on the wall straight in front of me was a the a calendar with the flag raising on Iwo Jima. And the barber, boy, your dad is a great man. Your dad is a great man. But that's not who my dad was. He was disconnected from that. You know, in the 1960s and 70s, we didn't talk a lot about World War II in, as a society. And, uh, you know, there was Hogan's Heroes and and uh, Gomer Pyle, USMC. The, the real greatest generation stuff didn't start until these guys started talking in their 70s, which was in the 1990s. So my dad was a guy. He was a funeral director. He had eight kids. He had a, a gorgeous wife. We had a big house. We had a cottage. We had dogs, cats. And he was a guy. And if you had happened to, an insurance man came from out of town to an investment meeting my dad was a member of. And he says, oh, I, I, you're Mr. Bradley who raised the flag on Iwo Jima. And my dad said, uh, yes, uh, that was a long time ago. And, you know, you just, just nothing to say. And once when I was about 35, he was about 65, I said, you know, we were at a, a cottage a meal and he was real relaxed. And I said, Dad, what still bothers you about that flag raising? And, you know, why don't you talk about it? And he said, oh, if only they hadn't had a flag on that pole. Betty, could you pass the butter, please? So you, nobody, you know, I went back and interviewed a friend of his, John Philbrandt, who he had known since kindergarten. And he knew him in his adult life. They were members of an investment club. They traveled in a car alone a lot. And he said, I have nothing to say to you about, about Iwo Jima because your dad never talked about it. And I said, how's that possible? You know, you knew him since he was a kid. You, you, you talked to him for hours and hours out. He said it was just something that your dad didn't want to talk about. And that's common with veterans who saw something. There's a lot of veterans you know, who were on the perimeter of Iwo Jima, who will talk a lot. But the guys who saw their friends uh, die by bleeding through their anus and saw, you know, Harlem Block is at the base of the pole. He's the guy putting the pole in the ground. Yeah. His uh, He got uh, his stomach sliced open by shrapnel, and he was trying to hold his intestines in his hands. And if I slice your stomach open... Your intestines are very, not greasy, but very slippery, difficult to hold. And he's wrestling with his intestines that are falling out of his hands. And he looked at his friends and his last words were, they killed me. So what are we going to talk about here? You know what I mean? In terms of veterans talking, it's not heroes being uh, heroic and quiet. It's I, I always like to say to civilians, you know, just think if you're a mother, you're 33, the kids are in the back seat in a uh, in your car they're in their kids seats and then you go along and there's an accident and their their heads are sliced off and the blood pressure from their body hits the roof of the car and splashes all over you know at what point is this mother at a cocktail party you know say tell me about your kids how they died you know it's not it's not that they're humble and brave it's horror you know my dad's platoon had 84% casualties so, folks, line up your graduating class. Let's say you had 40 people in your eighth grade class or 200 in your graduation, you know, in your in your uh, high school graduating class. Just watch 84 percent of them die in front of you screaming for their mothers. And then, uh, you know, why? Why don't you want to talk about this, Harry? 
You, you know what I mean? There were six guys who raised the flag. Three were dead in the ground on Iwo Jima. You know, my dad was carried off with uh, f- with his body full of shrapnel. So it's, you know, it was a horrible battle that they didn't want to talk about. That horror that you just explained, I, the, the big reason that I was excited to talk to you was exactly this question of why. Why isn't it being talked about? I want to get more to that because I think there's a little bit more to it. And we may have a little different perspective on it. I'm anxious to compare notes with you on that different perspective. Let me ask you this. How old were you when you first realized that your father was part of this iconic historic event? Do you remember about the age that you realized it was something? Well, we all, yeah, no, we all were. You're saying iconic historic event. We never realized that. We realized he was in a picture. And when when I, you know what I mean? We never realized, you know, iconic, historic, we, there, there's no Bradley. I had eight, seven brothers and sisters. We None of us ever realized that. My dad was an ordinary guy. You know, he came home for lunch. There's my dad. There was a war. Yeah, yeah. but it's true. And there was a war and there was a picture. And, you know, my brother interviewed my dad in eighth grade about it with a pen and pencil. And my dad said, well, somebody put a flag on a pole and then we put it up. I've been repeating that. I read that in the book. I, I could see my own father doing something like that. It's just uh, crazy when you think about that. But no, 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 Chris. It's See, we're starting with iconic heroic. And now we're going to brave that he was brave and humble. No, 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 no. They got to the top of the mountain and they peed. These were like teenagers. They had seen all their friends slaughtered over three days. See, they landed on a beach. Okay. Listeners have seen the Washington Monument. Now, if, if Chris Kunkel, who's interviewing me right now, was on top of the Washington Monument, he could see me at the bottom of the monument. You could see if I had a red shirt or a blue shirt. Well, Mount Suribachi was that tall. Now, put 2,000 guys in the Washington Monument. There were 2,000 Japanese in there, and they could see the Americans landing. And they shot the bejeebers out of them for three days. So the Marines landed on the beach, and it took them about three days to get 600 yards. That's six football fields. So you're up, you know, in trees shooting the whatever out of these guys on these six football fields. They finally get to the top of the of the mount, Mount Suribachi, and they put up a flag. They think the, the war is done. And, you know, they peed. Nobody thought that that flag raising was a heroic, iconic moment. That, you know, that's what the civilians thought back in the States when they saw the photo. But at the time, the heroism was the guys winning the Navy Cross for, you know, my dad won the Navy, was awarded the Navy Cross for heroism. He ran through Japanese bullets on February uh, 21, uh, two days before the flag raising. You know, that's what was going on. Raising a flag was was not a big deal. It's an amazing story. It really is all around. These guys, the character of these men, uh, the incredible, incredible fortitude. I want to switch gears just a second, James, and talk a little bit about the writing of the book. Uh, because what you did here is, uh, not to keep using the word, but iconic in itself, at least from my perspective, as soon as I opened it, I think in the first chapter when you say, you know, and he was my father, it just, it made me shake, really. Um, but how did you get started? What, what, what made you write it? 
I had a business reversal in New York. I, I was running a company and, and just got, t I realized I wasn't a businessman. And I thought, you know, I, I, I want to really figure out what I want to do. So everybody who's in their 40s and, and, and has a second thought about their life does what I did. I, I went to Mount Everest Base Camp and I walked up there and I said, I'm not coming down until I figure out what to do. And I, there was a little smoky, horrible hut, all full of grease and grime and smoke. You know, I mean, up, you know what I mean? There's no oxygen up there, Mount Everest. It's really uh, physically difficult. And there's this little greasy hut with a smoky uh, fire. And you go in there to get hot tea and your eyes are stinging from the smoke. And with my headlamp, I see uh, some cans on a shelf, but they're all full of gook. And I wipe off the gook, and it's uh, foie gras. The French uh, hiking team had left foie gras there, and the Nepalese didn't like it. So I said, hey, can I have that? Oh, yeah, take it. So I go get a bag, and I, I'm putting these greasy cans in there, and smashed against the wall is a book. And it's a book by an English author, Queen Elizabeth's favorite author, and it was his autobiography, and it was about how to write a book. He had been a jockey, and he got hurt. And then because he couldn't jockey anymore, he picked up a pen. So I thought, this is what I came here for. It's the only book I found on Mount Everest, and it said, be an author. So I walked around Mount Everest, which, you know, rumbles like a god, and I had a talk with the gods up there, and I thought, I'll try to be an author. So I came down, and then I was writing, 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 and uh, my dad died, and we found a secret box. So here, you know, my dad was on Iwo Jima. I'm trying to be an author. I'm in New York City. I had been in the entertainment business, so I knew how agents worked. And then my dad delivers a secret box to me. For everyone who thinks books are magic, you know, people, oh, you did so much research, Mr. Bradley. I'll tell you what research is. It's picking up the phone. So here's the most famous photo in the, not famous, but the most repro reproduced photo in the history of photography. Like the, the napalm girl in Vietnam, that's famous. The sailor kissing the girl in Times Square, that's fame. No, the Iwo Jima photograph is the most reproduced. It's been reproduced more than any other photo. And so guess what? I pick up the phone and call the families. I'm the first one to ever do it. No, no journalist ever thought, you know, I'll just call these families and see what's going on. Not the story that had never been told. That's incredible. And there's a theme to that. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more, too. And you've got an incredible collection of books there. I want to talk, get into that a little bit. So you, that's how you became a, a writer, how you jumped into it. Let me ask you this. After you wrote the book, did it change how you saw your father at all? Well, yes and no, but mostly no. When, you know, when I researched the book, yeah, I learned, well, for example, I read his Navy Cross. Now, folks, the Medal of Honor is the number one heroic uh, award you can get, recognition. The Navy Cross is like number two. So I was, so I read his Navy Cross. I said to my mom, uh, mom, uh, dad won a Navy Cross. My mom said, what's a Navy Cross? 
worked with the guy for 47 years and did not know he had been a war. I asked, I talked to Senator John McCain. I said, Senator McCain, my dad's face is on the, on that monument there in Arlington. And he kept it secret from his wife, family and community for 50 years. And McCain said, I, if you were not a son telling me that I wouldn't believe it. Let me ask you this. So your father, and we should have said this more clearly, Obviously, it's the Marines are best known for Iwo Jima and the flag raising photo. Your father was a Navy corpsman. And I want to just jump in here real quick and talk about the corpsman from a Marine perspective. We had a Marine corpsman in our Marine unit. And, and the corpsmen from the Marines are, are treated like royalty. And the corpsmen, even though they're not with Marines, they still complete the full training cycle. They're expected to be with the Marines on the front lines. Your father saw that. He was probably far more forward than some of the Marines who were supporting the Marines that he was supporting. Anyway, all that to say that there's a lot of respect for the corpsman. As you got into this and you were talking to all these Marines, how did it change your perception? What do you think of Marines in general? Well, they look at there were Army troops all over the Pacific. No Army (laughs) unit could take Iwo Jima. When with Iwo Jima, you had to go to the best amphibious warriors in the world. I mean, you know, when you have a big fight, you put Muhammad Ali in there. And the Marines are the Muhammad Ali's of the Pacific. Every place a Marine boot touched the ground in the Pacific, they took the ground, they won the battle. So this is the worst battle in the history of the United States Marine Corps. Guess what? It's the most heroic moment in history. I'm not trying to say that to brag up the Marines like Chris here. What I'm saying is, folks, that's what it took. It's the most bemetaled event since George Washington. This is the most difficult, heroic thing that ever happened in the history of the United States. More medals for heroism on Iwo Jima than any other event in the history of America. Well stated, James. Incredible. So that's what I think about Marines. It was impossible, so they gave it to the Marines. When the Marines had finished and taken the island, the Army came in to take it over. You know what I mean? The Army knew how to sweep the uh, runways and and, uh, get the water in and and build the uh, whatever. But the Army couldn't take Tarawa. The Army couldn't take Saipan. The Army couldn't take Iwo Jima. Impossible. You needed the Marines. Really well stated. And we talk about that a lot on the radio show. Let me ask you on a slightly different angle. If I got the story right, maybe I didn't. If I didn't, correct me if I'm wrong. But you had to get in touch with some uh, Marine officers to help get you and your family down to the island. Did I read that right? Uh, Commandant Krulak. Uh, took us there. I went down to see the commandant and uh, I said, I'd like to take my mother to Iwo Jima. And he slapped the table and he looked at his aides and he said, Mrs. Bradley's going to Iwo Jima. I had a feeling you were going to say that. And that's why I brought it up. I want to tell you a little story real quick. And I think it represents who you are, which is why I said that, you know, you walked in there to the common. I've never met the commandant. I spent four years active duty and uh, I'm not sure if I called the commandant even today. We're going to find out here because I actually need to talk to him, the current commandant. But uh, for you to call down, he says, come on down. You commit, so I want to go to Iwo Jima. He says, let's go. And because there's that much of a commitment to the men who were there. 
That's that's the what the meaning of semper fidelis. And I'll tell you this story real quickly. I've been I've been saying it a little bit lately as I go out speaking in my own books. You, you'll get out of the Marine Corps, and there is a, a special bond there. And you you won't you'll get out, you get discharged, you just want to go home and do your thing, just like you talked about your dad doing. It's a, I think most people want to do. You just want to kind of forget about it. You'll run into a guy 20, 30 years later, man. His face will be all blown up from, you know, overeating since he's been out, getting older, all this. He might be walking with a cane. You'll see that guy from 100 yards away. You'll instantly know who he is, run up and give him a hug. is like you saw him yesterday. It's just an incredible bond. I'm so happy to hear that the, the Marine Corps treated you and your family that way. At least one little thing that we could do for you. Let me ask you this. With all this talk, do you believe the battle was necessary? Did your father support the war after everything that he had been through? Well, no, it wasn't necessary. It was absolutely critical. If you look at a map, I mean, uh, uh, Paul Tibbetts uh, flew the Enola Gay that dropped the atom bomb in Hiroshima. And Paul Tibbetts told me to his face, you know, we rendezvoused over Mount Suribachi. All the planes circled Mount Suribachi on their way to Hiroshima. And wow. he said, if there had, if if he would, if the Marines had not taken Iwo Jima, there'd be no atom bombs flying around there. You had to take Iwo Jima. You had to take Iwo Jima because we were burning down Japan. Japan surrendered with no invasion, and we were launching airplanes from the Marianas, folks. If you want to look at a map, and to do that, you had to fly, oh, you know over Iwo Jima and then back over Iwo Jima and planes were being shot at. And then if they were damaged over Japan or they ran out of fuel or whatever, you know, they couldn't ditch and guys were dying. Uh, it's estimated that, well, we don't know how many lives Iwo Jima saved, but 25,000 airmen um, had to make emergency landings on Iwo Jima after it was taken. Wow. 25,000. I mean, you, you talked about some of the sacrifices and you lay it out there really well. You know, guys with their guts hanging out, horrific injuries, uh, limbs missing. I want to just read something real quick, a short uh, two, three sentences here from the book. He said, something happened to Mike, Ira, and Harlan on Bougainville. They would never discuss it, never identify exactly what had affected them so. But for the rest of their days, death was never far from their thoughts. Do you have any uh, suspicions on what happened there? I couldn't find out, but, you know, they saw a lot. See, Mike Strank is the only real, oh, I don't want to say it that way, but Mike Strank's the big hero of the flag raising. Mike Strank from Johnstown, Pennsylvania. He was the old man. He was 24. So he was the real old, experienced uh, Marine who had fought. And everybody looked up to him. He was a great teacher. And Mike knew he was going to die. He said goodbye to his friends and uh, his his sister. Uh, the The day before the invasion, he was watching the bombing. He told a friend he was going to die. 30 minutes before he died, he looked at a dead guy and he said, you know, I'll be like that soon. So he, I don't know why, but he knew he was going to die. Harlem Block, who put the flag, who's at the base of the pole putting it in, he also knew he was going to die. He gave his ring to his best friend, said, give it to my mother because I'm not coming back. 
he he uh, hitchhiked to see his brother and and sister two different trips in California and said goodbye. You won't be seeing me again. And everyone said, you know, Harlan, you know, you shut up. That's not true. You're just talking. But uh, the guys who said they were going to die were right. My second book, Flyboys, has eight guys who got their heads cut off on the next island. Uh, George Bush is the guy that got away. And of the eight guys who uh, said they were going to, of the eight guys, the, the, the half of them told their family they were going to die. And that's very, very, very rare for young people in battle to uh, say they're going to die. I want to ask you about something else. You mentioned that when your father got home on leave, he wasn't smiling. You talk about these other people saying you'll never see me again. The references to these guys coming home, being a different person. Did you feel that your father was a different person because of what he experienced? Did you ever say, oh, you know, he was, uh, you know, it's the it's the thoughts of the war or whatever the case might be. Or he's acting strangely. Did you ever see any evidence of any of that? No, <laughs> my dad was a steady Eddie. He was a poor boy, came back, you know, chose this beautiful, educated girl as a wife. And then, you know, my mother said I was married to him for four years before I realized he could make a mistake. He was very focused on being a successful funeral director, which is, you know, much more than burials. It's it's running a whole business, employees. He he bought the largest uh, he uh, real estate transaction in the county when he was 33. It's, and then he had eight kids. So he had a major business. He had a cottage. He had a home. He had eight children. And he was focused on, you know, George Bush, I got to know real well, the old man. And he wrote a book called uh, Looking Forward. And that's no joke. You know, these looking forward, they they don't. George Bush, like, he got a little older. He had Parkinson's in his leg. What's wrong with your leg, Mr. President? Oh, I don't know. I just drag it. Then the next time I see him, he's got a cane. How you doing? Oh, I, you know. Then he gets into a wheelchair. Then he can hardly move. It did never mattered. I realized it doesn't matter what you do to you can cut off these guys' legs. It does not, you know, there's tomorrow and I have an appointment. When we need to talk about that, it's it's something that we need to bring back indeed. The the big question, James, and I know you talked about it a little bit, at least you infer, but I'm gonna put it right to you. Why do you think these guys wanted to erase their memories of what happened there on Mount Suribachi? Why do you think they wouldn't talk? Well, they, it wasn't Mount Suribachi. It was the Battle of Iwo Jima because they saw their friends killed and they don't want to, you know, see every veteran, not I should say every veteran, but I'm generalizing. You'd call up a guy, Mr. Jones, you're on Iwo Jima. I'd like to talk to you. They, for the audience, if you ever talk to a vet who's seen killing, not a vet, you know, who pushed a pencil. And I have nothing against guys who push pencils. But the guys who see a bullet go through their buddy or an arm chopped off. You know, someone said to me, yeah, I saw your dad. This guy had his arm blown off. And your dad uh, uh, puts a tourniquet on the stump and then puts the guy's left arm under his right arm and says, go to the aid station. And the guy runs away with his arm, you know, left arm under his right arm. So when you see that stuff and guys are screaming, you know, in the book, one guy is in his uh, foxhole at night and two Japanese crawl up and they knife him to death and he's screaming, 
mom, mom, they're killing me. Mom, mom, they're killing me. So what's there to talk about? You know, I mean, you don't, it, it's like that mother who saw her children die. You can't get her at a cocktail party two years later. Hey, Joyce, tell, tell me about the kids, how they bled to death. It's just normal you don't talk about. It's not heroism. It's not modesty. It's horror. But let me get back to the, so you call up a vet or you talk to him, dad, grandpa, uh, uncle, uh, uh, Joe, whatever, you know, tell me about your war experience. If they saw horror, they go like this. Well, you know, I mean, we hit the beer and then the boom. And then, you know, (laughs) they have, they have one story to get rid of you. Well, you know, we always said, you know, back in the, and then the boat did this and the clinger, <laughs> you know, and then, and I would all, you know, I'd listen to their opening funny story and I'd say, yeah, that's very interesting, Mr. Jones, but my dad was a funeral director and I can take it if you tell me the truth. You know, my research shows that you uh, had a lot of your friends die. So let's talk about that. So I, I have a theory on this and, uh, I think it complements your your theory on this, and I I personally don't think it's it's the trauma itself directly, um, and I have a slightly different perspective. As I, like I said, I was anxious to talk to you about it, and I I can't relate in the sense that I do not have the experience of seeing the kind of trauma that they went through. Nobody does except those guys. You know, some guys. Maybe yeah, but see- I've interviewed hundreds of guys who saw that. That's what I'm I'm talking about. That narrow bunch that that you know, had somebody holding on to them as they were shaking and the blood was splurting out of them. That yeah. narrow bunch. See, they were all in a little tiny area and there are no trees. There were no bushes. So it's like, just just put a hundred guys on a football field and then you're shooting them, shooting them, shooting them over three days. And, you're, and you know these guys, you know their names, you know their brothers and sisters from letters. And you're just seeing them die over a period of three days on a football field. That's unusual. That's not Okinawa. You know what I mean? That that's not. I mean, Iwo Jima was tiny. So put 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 fifty guys in a room, and then just shoot eighty four percent of them over a period of three days. That's the experience. Yeah, you know, I think your your car crash analogy was spot on. Right, you're driving with your family in the car. And you have this horrific tragedy and both kids in the back seat, you know, die brutally and you get to your destination and there's a parade and crowds cheering and, you know, welcome to wherever you're arriving. So I'm really not in the mood for any of this right now. You're grieving, not celebrating, I guess. There's a, a mismatch there. But I think part of it is, and I'll say this to you as a veteran myself, I think for veterans speaking about these things, you obviously, with your background and, and your desire, you can handle the truth. I could see it in the book, but many people can't. And when when guys come home, you realize there's a fine line in certain circles between hero and monster. And the other part of it is that, you know, the Japanese were shooting, but they were shooting back. The Japanese were doing horrific things, but we were doing it back. And I think that part of it sometimes can be very difficult for people to understand the flag raising and everything that you just said, I'll say as a, as a Marine, there's a, an ethos and that ethos is very simple. We don't quit. We don't give up and we don't give up on each other. That's what the flag symbolizes. We didn't give up. We did what we came to do, but the tragedy was no less than what you mentioned. If you were driving in your car, 
And I think that mismatch of the truth. And I'll say this, James, and one of the reasons why the book was just so encouraging to me what you wrote, there can be different perspectives of the truth, especially with these kind of, there's more than one truth in the sense that there's more than one perspective. You had guys watching from the Bay. You, for example, talked about how the the Navy did did not lay enough um, um, uh, ground fire, I think you said, at, at Bougainville. And that's the perspective of the guys who was there for, for good reason. The guys who were on those ships may have a little different perspective of that. Basically, though, it all works to the same end. And the people who were there, they understand it for the, for the tragedy it was and the significance that it was. You did an incredible job telling the story. And I wanted to mention this about you personally, James. When I was discussing on the radio show on Monday that we, I was going to be doing this interview with you, I was going to say, for me, this is like meeting the Pope. I was very excited to meet with you and talk to you, and I thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. My uh, co-producer, my partner, he says, uh, you, don't, you don't want to say the Pope. you got to say, like, you know, Chesty Puller or Ronald Reagan or something like that. And uh, we're in a bit of a rush. I said Chesty Puller. As I started digesting that, uh, I thought, man, to, to reference you as Chesty Puller, I'm not sure if that was correct. Maybe I would say like meeting Chesty Puller's son. Have you ever read the book Fortunate Son by any chance? Yes, sir. Yeah. No, I'm in Vietnam. I just spent 10 years putting a book together. So, I know you're finishing yeah, I know, book right now. I know that story. So you know the incredible burden that you carry with all this. Do you feel that? Does that ever affect you? No, I, I, you know, I risk carpal tunnel uh, syndrome, you know, I mean, I didn't, I, I, I didn't, I didn't do anything it, like in terms of risking anything. And I just interviewed a bunch of guys and they were like my dad, they didn't want to talk. So I said, you know, only 22 guys went up the hill. So this wasn't like I had to track down thousands and, you know, and you can look on one piece of paper, there's Joe and Harry and Larry and, and, you know, 22 guys went up. So I'm talking to these guys, the survivors, and one of them, you know, your dad didn't talk, James, and I'm the same way, and I'm sure you can understand. I said, yes, sir, Mr. Jones, I can understand. Um, I said, do you mind if I keep in contact and just tell you what others are telling me? No, 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 no. So I'd call them like every three weeks, let's say, and say, you know, Larry told me this, and oh, 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 great, great. So on the third one, I thought I'll make my move. And I said, you know, Mr. Jones, I think you're not talking to me because an 18-year-old friend of yours died and you're afraid to cry. And I said, listen to me. I said, you're 75. You're on your way out. If you don't talk, it's like that 18-year-old died for nothing. Nobody is going to know his story because you didn't want to cry. I said, you talk to me. And he said, James, call me tomorrow at 1. So the next day I called him. Later, I learned he had shoot his wife out of the house. He tells me this horrific story that's in the movie and in the book about his friend dying. And at the end, he says, that's all I can say. And he hangs up the phone. And my keyboard is full of water. And I got my dog and went out for two hours. You know, I just, I, it just blew my mind. But, you know, they, the guy didn't want to cry when, you know, his son or daughter or wife asked him. He didn't want to cry. And I put him up against the wall and he had the courage to cry and tell me this horrific story. When I wrote the book, they identified the six guys who raised the flag. Since then, they have, they have re-identified them. Now, the Marine Corps knows how to fight, but they don't know how to do office work at all. And they screwed up the IDs on this picture. There were 22 guys went up the hill. There were two flags raised, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. The first flag-raising photo that the Marines released, they said, this is the photo of the first flag raising. And my dad is not in there. And the second flag raising, 
they said, Mr. Bradley, you're in this one. See, my dad never said he was a flag raiser. He was in a hospital in Hawaii and they showed him the famous flag raising photo and they said, you're in this picture. And he knew he raised a flag, but you know, he had 18 days of, of see, they didn't, they didn't think like first flag, second flag, where are you behind? It was kind of like going to Starbucks and getting coffee. And then a month later, I say, Hey, on that 8 a.m., you know, who's in front of you and who's, and see this picture of this woman in this purple dress. You know, why were you, why did you, hold your cappuccino in your left hand versus your right hand. This was all nonsense to them. And and people testified, Ira Hayes and Rene Gagnon, the two survivors, testified that my dad was in the first flag raising. Well, what happened? Finally, somebody discovered all these photos that the Marines screwed up and didn't release. And it shows my dad is in the first flag raising. The reason they place him in the second flag raising is because the rope in the second flag raising, my dad roped the flag to the pole. So my dad was in the second flag raising, you know, in a way he roped the pole and everybody saw him there. And then some guys that is not in that he's in the grazing photo. He's not in the second, but everybody said he was because he was physically there, you know, helping with the flag. My dad would always say on the bond tour, you know, every Marine on Iwo Jima put those flags up. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. It, it, it There wasn't one heroic person, but there's a whole confusing story about the identities of the flag raisers, and you can get into it. I write an afterword that straightens things out. Point is, the Marines raised the flag on Iwo Jima, and they took the island, and that's the bottom line. Well, there is a lot of support. I want to just mention this real quick from a Marine perspective. Yes, we're very proud of what happened on Iwo Jima. We're very proud of our, our war fighting history. Uh, but the fact of the matter is there's a lot of support that goes into that. The people who made the bullets and bandages and got the beans to us, you know, so so we could eat. And your father as well was all part of that. And the corpsmen, um, they get and understand the mission. I never once remember the corpsmen at all um, doing anything but completely supporting the mission of the Marine Corps. They, they are truly uh, heroes in, in many ways. And I, I can attest to this firsthand. I never had any combat issues with the corpsmen, um, but I can be, remember being on a 25-mile force march, and, you know, the, the, we, we had been marching all day. We'd stop, and guys' feet are all bloody. Well, the corpsman was running around taking care of everybody. He never got a break. And that was the demands that were put on them. And I can only imagine in that situation. So, I think that your father, uh, I can imagine, realized that as well, you know, when he was on top of that mountain. So, man, there was a lot of people behind us pushing to get us here. And it's it's great to know that he respects that. It really is. I'm so glad that you got this story out and that you you were able to take these painful memories and really, and you, you, you brought out the painful stuff. And I think you documented that well, but you really um, exposed the story for what it truly was from a forward-looking fashion. And I think that is what was most motivating to me. And, and some of what you said here to me, you know, um, that your, your, your friend died for nothing because you don't want to cry and talk about it. Especially now, I believe our country is in a, a moral and a leadership crisis. And the people best equipped to deal with that are our veterans. And, and right now, the country is not even listening. But part of the problem is as veterans, we're not doing a great job telling some of these stories. You are. You're doing a great job. And I'm trying to do what I can. It's very, very motivating uh, what you're doing here. And I, I said it to you in the email. I'll say it to you right now. When I saw 
and I'm getting ready to release my own book with my, my own battle, no Iwo Jima, that's for sure, or anything close to that. But it is my own legacy, and I'm glad to be leaving it for my children. I have to tell you that uh, for your father to know that that work is out there the way you presented that, I have to believe he sees you as a hero, James. It's really great work, what you're doing, um, and I hope that you can continue it. I noticed the theme with that. Um, with your other books that this, I, the truth, I think appears on every, the word truth appears on every cover. Don't quote me on that. But is that a big part of the theme exposing the true stories? I went to school and I went to university in Japan and got a degree in East Asian history. And then later, you know, a generation later, when I went back out to the Pacific and interviewed people, it's like, wow, I wasn't taught the truth. So I wrote Flags of Our Fathers about Iwo Jima and the guys there. And then on the very next island, so get this. If you look at the flag raising photo that everybody knows, the last guy whose hands do not reach the pole, that's the great Indian Ira Hayes. Johnny Cash wrote a song called The Ballad of Ira Hayes, Calling drunken Ira Hayes, he doesn't come here anymore. And that's Ira Hayes. And at the moment Ira Hayes was, the Indian was putting up the flag on Iwo Jima, February 23rd, 1945. There was an Indian from Texas on the next island, Chichijima, getting his head cut off. And if you can believe it, that was covered up until I got the paperwork and uh, eight American flyers were killed on the next island, but they were killed so horribly that they deep six the information. And the guy who got away in this story is George Bush. George Bush was shot down and the Japanese were coming out to get him and they were going to chop his head off and uh, a submarine picked him up. So the guy who got away in, the, in my second book becomes president of the United States. And I took George Bush back to Chichijima and introduced him to soldiers who were going to cut his head off. President, I said, okay, these guys are going to cut your head off. And then uh, you were bombing them. You were trying to kill them. So uh, let's have a beer. These guys in their 70s hugged each other and cried. James, I learned a little you. something about. I learned a little something about war. And then I wondered, how did we get out there? My dad was from Appleton. What was he doing 600 miles south of Tokyo? Why wasn't he down in Argentina or uh, in uh, Zimbabwe or something? You know, why Japan? And I went back and I wrote a book about Theodore Roosevelt's approach. The first president to push us out into the Pacific, into Japan, uh, into the uh, relations with Japan was Theodore Roosevelt. And then Franklin Roosevelt obviously dealt with uh, the run-up to World War II. So I wrote two more books, the, the China Mirage and the Imperial Cruise, about how we got out there. So it's like my last two books were precursors to Flags of Our Fathers, trying to figure out what's, what forces sent the, got the Marines out there in the first place. The, it's like my last two go back and, and study how they got, why they got to Iwo Jima. There was a hundred year, you know, Commodore Perry sailed to these two islands in 18, I think, 1842. The U.S. Navy was looking at Iwo Jima in 1842 as a base. So there's a long story here. You know, we just say, oh, Pearl Harbor and then Iwo Jima. No, 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 no. 
we're going back pre-Abraham Lincoln days. We were looking at Iwo Jima so, and Chichijima. We had a base on Chichijima back in the 1840s. And it's the first spot in the Pacific that America claimed. If we were going to go Go through chronologically, what would be the first book in your series, The China Mirage? The first would be uh, The Imperial Cruise with Theodore Roosevelt. And then uh, The China Mirage gets us into World War II. And then uh, Flags of Our Fathers. And then Flyboys about the next island. Flyboys is my favorite because... They kept a, I mean, this guy told me the story. I'm at his kitchen table in, in Iowa. And he said he was, he witnessed this trial and he was sworn to secrecy, but he wanted to tell me. And, you know, these guys got their heads cut off. They got their livers eaten. It was all top secret. And then he says, and George Bush is in the middle of it. And he doesn't know what I'm telling you. So I'm like, George Bush, former CIA vice president, president does not know what you're telling. This can't be true. It was true. I went down, met George Bush. George Bush is like, tell me more. Take me back to Chichijima, Jane. George Bush did not know what happened on that island. You know, it was 1940s. Everything was typed on typewriters, paper, files. So when they had the trial of the Japanese who beheaded these uh, flyboys, George Bush was at Yale. He had a little kid. He had a wife named Barbara. You know, it, and he never knew what happened until I told him. James, I could say the same thing. I'm a, I'm a product of two Marine parents. I was born in Beaufort, South Carolina, where Paris Island is. True story. Both my parents were stationed there. I've known about Iwo Jima since I was probably 10 years old, and I've learned a lot from reading your book. I didn't realize the other books were connected like that. Anybody, and I'm going to order them right away. We'll be talking about it on the radio show because this is absolutely great history and, and true stories. If you're interested in books by James Bradley, which I highly recommend, jamesbradley.com, James, B-R-A-D-L-E-Y.com, jamesbradley.com. There's four great books. James, do the other three read as well? What's the best written book? You said you like Flyboys best? Well, Flyboys is too unbelievable. They were eating, you know, it's about eating the enemy. And George Bush gets away. They were going to put him in the pot and eat him. Connected history spanning a couple of different presidents. You've had access to some of the highest people in the country, and you speak about it so casually. And you've uncovered the true story of something that is is one of the most remarkable events in modern human history, James. It's a really incredible work that you've done. It's like I say, it's picking up the, I mean, you know, hey, President Bush, you know. I mean, I'll tell you a story about Bush. So I get this information and I write to him at his library. Hey, Mr. President, you have to talk to me because uh, uh, I got this information. So I get a polite letter back. James, I read Flags of Our Fathers, love the book. I can't talk to you because my son is pre- just got elected. And I'm not talking to Reader's Digest, New York Times. You know, I, I'm, I, I can't talk to you because I, I told everybody I'm not going to give interviews. So I write to him, well, Mr. President, I don't care. You have to talk to me because these guys, these other George Bushes got killed and you have to talk to me. They got shot down right where you did. And you got to talk to me because you're part of the story. I mean, it's not like you got to talk to me. You got to talk for these guys. So he writes me seven letters telling me why he can't talk to me. So by happenstance, on uh, Pearl Harbor Day, we're both invited to go to Fredericksburg, Texas, to the Museum of the Pacific and give a speech. I'm the opening speaker and George Bush is the big speaker. Well, there's 4,000 people there. And 
and we're in and you know we're we're backstage waiting for bush and bush shows up seven limousines people jump out bush is six foot you know bush is taller than reagan bush is an enormous guy and george bush comes well i used to be in the meetings business i used to coach corporate speakers so folks listening to this what does every speaker do before they go on stage to give a speech what do they, they do? take a pee they take a pee <laughs> So I got myself last in line. Someone would get behind me and I'd say, no, 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 come on in front of me. I made sure I was last in line. And then he comes down the line shaking hands and, you know, oh, good to meet you. Good to meet you. Good. And I say, hey, Mr. President, James Bradley, flags of our father. Oh, James. Yeah, we've been communicating. I said, Mr. President, you need to go to the head. Yeah. I said, it's right here. I had sussed it out. So the Secret Service couldn't follow us into the can. So we're standing at the urinal and I had to rehearse. Hey, Mr. President, you got shot down in this bay and, and Floyd Hall got shot down, uh, two months earlier and the Japanese took him and they did this and that. And then you got rescued and da, da, da. Doesn't say a thing. We go over to wash our hands, two separate, uh, things and he's washing. And then I got another pitch, you know, Mr. President, you got shot down here, but this guy did this. And I went back and I found this guy who saw you and da, da, da. doesn't say a thing. He walks out of the restroom. I open the door. The crowd is there. And I thought, I am a dope. I just, I just, you know, I cornered the president in the can and he didn't even say anything. <laughs> I think it's awesome. <laughs> so seven days later, I'm doing what every author is excited about watching paper come out of my printer. You know, completely boring day. Phone rings. Hello, James. This is George Bush. Okay. And folks, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but what do you do when the president calls? I, I was all I, I was all alone, but I stood up. Yeah. Why would you stand up if the president, I don't, this is George. I immediately stood up and before my knees got all the way locked, I thought he's going to ask me to do something and I'm going to say yes. When the president called, it, it's, I'm not kidding you. Like I hadn't rehearsed that. I just thought, you know, wow. presidents don't call, he's going to say something and I'm going to say yes. He said, James, take me back to Chichijima. I said, yes, sir. And then the next day I was down there with the Secret Service and at the library and, you know, planning his trip. That's absolutely an incredible story, James. You corner the president in the bathroom. You're lucky you didn't get shot, killed, arrested, or all three. <laughs> it doesn't work out, but it does work out in the end. He comes back and gives you the answer that you need. That is uh, phenomenal. What was it like? How, how did Flags of Our Fathers become a movie. Did you watch it? You had to have. Oh no, I I was on. I sailed out in the Pacific with them. They they shot the Black Sands in Iceland. See, Iwo Jima has risen about twenty feet, so Iwo Jima is different than it was, hmm. and it has some grass on it. And they looked at the Black Sands of Hawaii, New Zealand, Iwo Jima, and then Iceland was good, and they gave them the best deal. So listen to this. NATO has been in Iceland since when? 1948, 1950, something like that. Clint Eastwood brought in more military equipment into Iceland than the NATO has. Iceland had to build a new wharf to receive the amount of equipment that Clint Eastwood brought in. He bought in, brought in Japanese tanks. They got Japanese tanks working in the Icelandic sands, you know? Wow. So no, I was I was there with the shooting and Steven Spielberg bought the book. And you know, people wonder, how do you sell a book to Steven Spielberg? I'll tell you how. You're right. I, I found out. Flags of Our Fathers comes out. 
Steven Spielberg says to his assistant, go buy Flags of Our Fathers. The assistant goes to the bookstore, buys a copy, puts it in his hands, he closed the door, and he read it. Many other people tried to buy the book. They were all days or a week late. Clint Eastwood tried to buy the book, but Steven Spielberg was there first. So, folks, I'm just trying to tell that story. Not that I have anything to do with Steve. I'm just saying the number one guy in the history of movies does not have a committee. The number one guy <laughs> didn't, you know, you go do this, you go do that. The number one guy says, buy, you know, give me the book. He shuts the door and he reads the book. And he's the first one to call of everyone in the country. Seven I have not seen, seen the movie yet. Seven. I'm going to be sure to watch that. I'm more of a reader than I am a movie guy. But a good friend of mine, a Vietnam veteran who was shot down in Vietnam, uh, he watched the movie and he said it was epic. He said he felt like you were there. Really well done. I have to imagine for you seeing well, that. Well, it's Clint, Clint Eastwood. He, he, you know, he's a Renaissance man. He wrote the music. The, you know, he wrote the music for seven of his films. Incredible. Incredible. James, this is a big deal. The book, your work, it's a big deal for veterans. I'm anxious to get the other books. JamesBradley.com. I'm going to make sure that that's in the, the notes, anybody who wants to grab the books. Before we sign off here, is there anything else that you want to say about the books or your time or, or your dad? Well, you know, the key for me, the point of Flags of Our Fathers is ordinary guys doing the impossible. If you look at the biographies of the guys, the key is not that these are some unusual heroes that aren't us. They are ordinary. They are. So people say it's the greatest generation. I say it's they had the greatest challenge. It, wow. You know, World War II is the biggest event in human history. And these ordinary guys rose to the challenge and we can do it again. Ordinary guys doing the impossible. James, I can tell from talking to you, you're an ordinary guy. You've done something extraordinary with the book as well. I can't thank you enough for coming on and talking to me today. What an incredible interview. What an inspiring guy on so many different levels. I can't believe all that he shared here today. I hope you enjoyed that. He spoke about the resolve of the Marines and importantly, spoke about simple people doing great things. And I think that's a story that every American can embrace. One question that we didn't answer is why didn't they speak about their time there? And they did get to open up a little bit. He spoke about that. He was able to crack that code a little bit. But we didn't fully answer the question. And I don't know that we wanted to get to it today anyway. We'll leave that chapter for another other time. Hopefully we'll get another chance to bring James Bradley back. Thanks so much. It was truly an honor for me and I hope you'll be back for the Monday radio show. Don't forget to visit projectchaos.org.